Welcome to the latest episode of the Eclectic Highway. I'm very happy to have Gautam Kilgatki as my guest today. Gautam is one of the strongest voices out there, promoting the further improvement of internal combustion engines. Now, Gautam and I could have discussed a lot of different topics, but I really wanted to focus on the scale and the challenges of the effort to decarbonize transportation. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Now, here's the interview. For listeners who may not know you, can you talk a bit about your background and what you're working on now? Uh, well, uh, I, well, I'll give you a brief CV. Uh, I did my first degree in aeronautical engineering in IIT Bombay in 1972. And I came straight over to Bristol here to do my PhD. It was in supersonic uh, uh, aerodynamics. And then for four years, I was a postdoc with Ken Bray's group in Southampton University doing turbulent combustion. It was actually developing an optical diagnostic system to uh, measure turbulence in uh, rocket engine exhaust, actually. Uh, And then I joined Shell in 1979. And uh, I was there for more than 31 years, uh, essentially working on what you might call fuel engine interactions. I started out doing sort of combustion research in, you know, in uh, lifted diffusion flames, etc., associated with flares, uh, flaring, you know, from uh, emergency flares and so on. And then I insinuated myself into the uh, group which was working on optical diagnostics in the engines because I had new optical diagnostic techniques. So I started out my engine research uh, bit with optical diagnostics in engines. By the way, you might uh, people might want to know that Shell, that the group in Shell was the first one to do uh, uh, laser diag, you know, LDA in engines, first one to do cars in engines. Uh, so this was all in the sort of just before 1980, in fact, 78, 79, like that. Wow. And and I joined that, uh, when I say group, there was only two people who were doing this. And then I gradually started looking at uh, fuel effects in engines. And uh, I worked on all aspects of uh, spark ignition engines, starting from ignition, uh, spark ignition, early flame development, cyclic variation, uh, then a knock, and then deposits in engines. And I was involved in several uh, big uh, product developments for Shell. I mean, new fuels, new additives, and things like that. And then in 19, uh, uh, what, 2010, I joined Saudi Aramco as a senior consultant to help set up the program for engine and fuels research in there because they wanted to uh, expand that but they, you know the question was what do you exactly do i mean so i, I helped with that now it has grown into a fantastic uh, you know group of about 90 people spread around nine uh, four places so that is my background i retired in uh, uh, july uh, 2018 from saudi aramco and moved to oxford yeah. And uh, uh, in, uh, uh, well, I've been also involved with several universities. C- currently, I'm a visiting professor at Oxford. Uh, very till very recently, I was also at Imperial, the Imperial College. And then uh, I've been a um, visiting, well, a part time professor in KTH Stockholm and in 
Einhorn Technic Technical University, Einhorn, and also Sheffield University. So I've had uh, uh, sort of a bit of foot in the, you know, in the universities as well. Okay, so let's get into sort of the meat of the meat of the discussion right now, and you know. We've both seen, and all of our audience has also seen, many governments out there setting decarbonization goals for, say, 2040, 2050, you know, some year in the future. But when you think about it, the scale and the challenges of this energy transition, I don't think are really fully appreciated by most people. Hmm. And I know you do appreciate these challenges. So this is why I want to talk to you about this on this podcast episode. And Hmm. I want to focus on the barriers to the growth of electric vehicles and other alternative energy transport solutions. Yeah. So to kind of kick off that conversation, let's talk about liquid fuels, right? Because liquid Hmm. fuels power the vast majority of transportation Hmm. today. Why have liquid fuels become the dominant source of fuel for transportation? Well, I mean, very clearly they have great advantages in terms of energy density. If you look at it uh, at uh, normal temperature and pressure, uh, compared to hydrogen, uh, a a litre of gasoline has 3,000 times more energy compared to natural gas, it's 800 times more energy. They're very easy to transport and store, you know, and that's why they've become fuels of choice for transport. And that's why a very large infrastructure uh, worth trillions of dollars has grown up over the past century or so, more than a century, in fact. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a simple reason, basically. And I, I mean, in fact, uh, if you think about how much energy is going through a hand when you fill up your uh, car, at, uh, if you're putting half a liter per second in into your car, I mean, that's about... Uh, what, it'll be about uh, 16 megawatts. I'm sorry, am I getting it right? It's, uh, yes, it's something like that. You know, uh, 16 megawatts. Yeah, and that leads to my next question too is, think about the scale of this. How much energy just on a daily basis do we need from liquid fuels? If you kind of sum up gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, do you have an estimate on that? Yes, uh, sure. I mean, these are published regularly by uh, the IEA and so on. For example, if you look at it, take a snapshot, say the latest figures I had for, from 2018 third quarter, and uh, uh, it's about 4.9 billion litres of gasoline, 4.9 billion litres of diesel, and about uh, 1.3 uh, uh, billion litres of jet fuel each day. That's more than 11 billion liters of uh, liquid fuel used each day. I mean, you know, so this puts into perspective, yes, yeah, you know. And before we go on, I mean, I think this is, uh, you talked about uh, the various, uh, uh, you know, targets that governments have set in. Uh, of course, transport is the most difficult to decarbonize. Let's put it aside for the time being. But let's look at uh, total uh, energy that is uh, provided by um, fossil fuels. Uh, if the world uses uh, about 580 exajoules of energy per year, I mean, yeah, that's 580 into 10 to the 18 times joules, okay? And about... of it comes from fossil fuels, well, oil, gas, and coal. 
and uh, about 1.1% comes from um, wind and solar and about 4.4% from nuclear. Okay. Right. So if you want to replace uh, and about 6.8% from hydro, but there's not much scope for going, uh, I mean, more hydro or, uh, and there is a lot of uh, um, opposition to nuclear as well. Right. So if you want to replace the fossil 85% of the primary energy used in, by, in the world by wind and solar, you have to increase them by nearly 70 times, okay, compared to now. Wow. And mm -hmm. uh, if you think about how many nuclear power stations you would want, uh, if you work it out, it's about 500, uh, uh, 5,400 nuclear plants of three megawatts each, you know. So it is a huge problem. And I don't think the governments uh, recognize it. I mean, you know, the world cannot build that many nuclear power stations in the next 30 years, basically, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that's the scope of the problem. I mean, of course, with, uh, with uh, um, I mean, obviously, if you go to completely electrified uh, systems, you'll lose less energy, etc. But I mean, I'm just giving you the size of the problem, you know. Uh, uh, and um, of course, with liquid, I mean, with transport, it's equally uh, difficult. In fact, more difficult. Right. Thank yeah. you for thank you for yeah. those numbers. That really helps put put the whole thing into context. It really is a huge a huge challenge. So yeah. I think our, some of our listeners may be um, maybe shocked to hear those numbers. So I, so thank you for that. Um, so if you could look out to twenty forty. Okay, so let's just pretend, you know, wave your magic wand. We're now in 2040. And I just, I realize that uh, making any sort of predictions is kind of a scary thing, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. What share of transport energy do you expect will come from alternative sources? And when I say alternative sources, I do mean electric vehicles, but I also mm -hmm. mean things like biofuels, natural gas, hydrogen, right. and so forth. Well, I mean, many re reputable in institutions do this kind of uh, projections. I mean, the USEIA, for example, you know, and uh, ExxonMobil, there are projections, World Energy Council, and they're all fairly certain. I mean, even with different scenarios, I mean, uh, I mean there are some scenarios where uh, this, uh, uh, the most credible scenarios, let me put it this way, uh, are that by nine by 2040 uh, between 85 and 90 percent of transport energy will still come from liquid fuels from fossil uh, you know from oil liquid fuels from oil i'm talking about okay just like today yeah uh, and uh, i mean the, but this in terms of the, the number of liters that we were talking about is still huge because currently about 95% of transport energy comes from these liquid fuels, from, you know, petroleum-based liquid fuels. So when they go down to uh, sort, of, sort of, say, 85%, I mean, the petroleum share, that is a huge, uh, uh, that's 10% of, uh, you know, more than 10% of uh, uh, the figures we are talking about, which is about 11 billion liters per day. You know, right, so right. we are talking about uh -huh. 1.1 billion liters. So it's a huge change, but it's not enough to replace everything. You know? Yeah, and that's what I think a lot of people are a little confused about because they would they would hear you say, "Well, we're 95 percent now. In 2040, we'll be 85 percent." Yeah, 
okay, that doesn't sound like a big change, right? Because a lot of people are thinking, oh, by 2040, we'll have, you know, we'll have decarbonized everything at that point or the vast majority. But just going the 10% that you're talking about is huge. Mm. Exactly. And it's a huge scale. So, so that's, that I'm, I'm really glad we're having this discussion because a lot of people that I talk to, especially people that aren't in engineering and things like that, they, mm. they have no idea about the magnitude of these numbers. And this is my concern, really, that people who set these targets do not appreciate sufficiently what is required, you know. Uh, and, uh, I mean, at least we should be honest and think about uh, whether we can achieve these targets. and. If you force these targets, what are the consequences? You know, there are, there are very bad consequences if you force the targets, you know, before everything is uh, uh, ready, I mean, I would say. Before we're ready for it. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of leads into um, my next question. So, again, a lot of people out there believe that battery electric vehicles are the way to decarbonize transportation, right? And we should be switching from internal combustion engine vehicles, or maybe even hybrids, we should be switching to be EVs as soon as we possibly can. So if we can get the whole fleet converted, say in 10 years, um, that would be that would be great to, to them. Um, what but obviously, there's some consequences to this, and there's some impacts to this. So what would the environmental and economic impacts be if say, if we did take our whole fleet and transformed it into BEVs, say in 10 years? Yeah, uh, one more point we have to remember, by the way, is uh, full battery. I mean, you know very well, I mean, amongst that there are different degrees of electrification. And the only uh, only way you can eliminate internal combustion engine is is to go to full battery electric vehicles. Okay. And if you go to full battery electric, that is really only possible or desirable for light duty vehicles because of the size of the battery required, you know. And even then, you would say small light duty vehicles because we'll come to the consequences of larger batteries, etc. in a minute. But here is the point. Light duty vehicles uh, account for about 44, 45% of total transport energy used, okay? So even if you converted all the... Uh, light duty vehicles in the world, which are now currently about uh, 1.2 billion, expected to go to about 1.7 billion by 2040, something around there. If you converted all of them, you'd still only solve, uh, uh, only address 45% of the problem. Okay. Uh, uh, Aviation is certainly not possible to be run by batteries in, in spite of the various fantasies put forward uh, by uh, people, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I mean, no, I agree, I agree. Yeah. Uh, aviation accounts for about 13% of transport energy, meaning, you know, uh, use, uh, and the rest is from commercial transport. I mean, uh, commercial road transport, and, uh, mostly commercial road transport. Uh, now, and the other most important point, which you, I mean, which you know, I know you make very often, I mean, I, I've seen you on LinkedIn, is that it is a lie to say, I mean, I, I'm using the words, uh, I mean, it's a strong word, but it's a lie to say that battery electric vehicles are zero CO2 vehicles. They are not, okay? Right. They are not likely to be zero CO2 vehicles for quite a long time because, first of all, all the electricity they use 
has to be uh, zero CO2. Secondly, I mean, they, uh, there is a huge amount of energy used in uh, uh, mining and battery manufacture, much more than you would require for internal combustion engine uh, manufacture. Uh, and for example, it could be as high as about, uh, well, 250 kilograms of CO2 per kilowatt hour of battery. You know, so if you think about a te Tesla, say, with a 100 kilowatt hour battery, you're starting with a, like a, what, 25 ton deficit to start with. I mean, from manufacturing alone, I mean, of CO2, you know. Mm -hmm. So yep. uh, if you, the point is you have to look at it on a life cycle basis. Of course, I mean, this doesn't include uh, the amount uh, of energy needed to uh, recycle batteries or dispose them off, etc which is also much higher than for internal combustion engines, by the way, because they're very complicated to uh, recycle and so on. So if you do a life cycle analysis, unless all the energy that is used in the manufacture of battery, manufacture of internal combustion, I mean, sorry, batteries, and the use of electric vehicles uh, is truly carbon-free, they cannot be zero carbon, zero CO2. You know, and this is the problem now. I mean, many of the targets are being set. I mean, certainly in Europe, for example, and the US also, I think, they are considered zero CO2 uh, the vehicles, yeah, you know? Right. In, in some cases, in some cases, they even get to be counted as more than one zero CO2 vehicle. Right, yeah. In yeah. the averaging and things like that, so. yeah. Right. I mean, and, and, and this is this is the problem with, I mean, in fact, this is why uh, it so happens that the OEMs are not really interested very much in assessing, assessing them on a life cycle basis. I mean, basically, you are uh, uh, fooling yourself that you're, I mean, take for China, for instance, more than half the battery electric vehicles are in China, you know. And in fact, uh, the growth of battery electric vehicles in China will increase the overall CO2 uh, from transportation in China because of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, electricity generation still coal-based and all the energy generation there is very fossil fuel-based still. And it's likely to remain so for quite some time, you know. So, uh, and that's one of the major environmental issues. They're not CO2 uh, zeros. Of course, they are zero, uh, I mean, there's no pollution, I mean, pollutants that as we know it from the tailpipe. And that therefore, uh, they could be very useful in controlling uh, or reducing, uh, uh, you know, local air quality pollution, lo local air pollution, for instance, improving local air yes. quality. But yes. if that is the case, you have to address it by different policy Measures you have to, you know, you set very strict uh, exhaust criteria for emissions criteria, for instance, or you you want ban uh, combustion engines from city centers if you're worried about them. You know, there are all kinds of other policy uh, uh, approaches you can take, but to, I mean, to make this as part of, I mean, like in the UK, for example, this is part of the CO two uh, target. I mean, in, as, as in, in order to meet the CO2 targets, they are saying they should, they should uh, go to battery electric vehicles. Not only that, but they want to ban internal combustion engines, including hybrid electric vehicles, you know, which is absolutely stupid. 
I mean, hasn't that been moved up to 2035? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was going to be 2040, it was 2035, but the, uh, the transport secretary said just before uh, uh, the lockdown, etc., that he wants to push it even for, you know, bring it even nearer. So what is the consequence yeah. going to be? I mean, uh, uh, you know, if we say, suppose they bring, I mean, the, uh, the Climate Change Committee, uh, uh, which is the body that advises the government uh, um, here on climate change matters, wants it to, uh, uh, to be hap- happening at, in 2030. Suppose you ban uh, in- sale of internal combustion, by, uh, combustion engines by 2030, right? So what will happen uh, by 2025, per- perhaps, all research and development in combustion engines will stop because the OEMs will withdraw from that. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, it there even you know by then, of course, probably ninety five percent of transport will still be coming from combustion engines. So how are you going to improve them? You know, so exactly. So, so even if you want to promote battery electric vehicles, it does not make any sense whatsoever to ban uh, the sale of internal combustion engines. You know, I hope uh, the government here sees some sense uh, because there there is a consultation process going on at the moment, but uh, we'll see what happens, you know. Uh, so that, Yeah, that's, I agree with you and that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, I you know, agree so, with you that, that there's that's the big risk is is the more we talk about banning internal combustion engines, the more the the less funding and the less OEMs and and you know research labs may be working on them, but we're we're going to end up with a bunch of IC engines anyway in the future, yeah, and right. then we we risk not improving them. And exactly, like the point exactly. you made, and so yeah. I think that is that is really doing um, kind of the environment and everything a disservice by doing that. So yeah. I, I totally agree with that point. Um, there's another there's another aspect of this, and that's we talk about human toxicity potential. Right. Um, so that's kind of a mouthful, but we talk about that HTP. So can you, can you just briefly talk about sort of the difference between that for BEVs versus say IC engine vehicles? See, with IC engines, the human toxic, I mean, basically human toxicity potential is a way of estimating uh, the impact on human health. I mean, it's a very, uh, many people think it's, uh, that's the only thing that seems to be around now to uh, assess this because, but it is a very um, complicated sort of statistical probability, probability-based uh, measurement. But in, uh, in, I mean, that's how, for example, uh, uh, the impact of smoking is measured, you know, uh, things like that. Uh, with uh, internal combustion engines, the human toxicity potential uh, arises from pollution. I mean, you know, hydrocarbons, uh, unburned hydrocarbons, uh, particulates, and nitrogen oxides, right? Uh, uh, and uh, uh, of course, there are. If you look at uh, the most recent, most advanced, say Euro six diesels, you know, uh, they have no particulates. Because they have a very, very good, I mean, when they're warmed up, of course, I mean, uh, very good uh, uh, particle traps, I mean, in fact, you know. Uh, and in fact, uh, in many uh, um, urban centers, certainly in places like Delhi, uh, the air um, the going into the engine will be dirtier than the air coming out in terms of particulates, 
because they will eliminate all particulates. And even with mm-hmm. NOx, things are getting very much better. Now, with uh, with uh, battery electric vehicles, the toxicity potential arises almost entirely from the mining and manufacture of batteries, basically. And uh, what, this is not being really appreciated very much, but it is been estimated that is three to five times worse than uh, an equivalent uh, internal combustion. There are several papers. There are other environmental impacts of mining for, especially for, for things like cobalt, for instance, and uh, and also for making lithium salts, I mean, uh, that uh, are needed for batteries. I mean, most of it is happening in the in China at the moment, and this is considered to be very environmentally unfriendly. Now, uh, why is it not being uh, talked about very much? Because most of it happens somewhere else. For example, uh, with the cobalt, I mean, 60% of it comes from the Congo, the uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And there is tremendous uh, amount of um, angst about this. I mean, for example, uh, uh, there have been many reports uh, from Amnesty International and so on, uh, looking at the impact of this on health, in, of, especially of young, uh, I mean, children who are involved in this mining in, uh, in the Congo, right? Now, this, this is not an issue now, because the number of cars, I mean, battery electric vehicles is relatively small, though there are about 5 million at the moment in, in, in the world, I mean, the number of them. Uh, but, and it happens elsewhere. So someone described to me battery electric vehicles should be called uh, EEVs, emissions elsewhere, <laughs> you know. Uh, emissions uh, elsewhere vehicles. vehicles. I'm going yeah, to use right. that. That's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in fact, but you see, the point is, uh, take the UK, for instance. I mean, uh, there are, in order to sort of, well, not UK, just take the world. Uh, right now, uh, battery electric vehicles are less than 0.5% of the total uh, light duty vehicle park, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you want to bring them, make all of them, you know, uh, battery electric vehicles, you will have to increase them by a factor of maybe 200 at least. Uh, no, it, this is just an underestimate because uh, this this you have to increase, I mean, you have to, uh, in terms of battery size needed, because you have to make SUVs, battery electric vehicles, etc., as well, right? Mm-hmm. So yes. maybe yes. Four, five, 400, 500 times more. When you're talking about numbers like that, it, you cannot, in all conscience, uh, uh, forget about these other impacts on human health and so on, you know? And uh, I suspect people who are, you know, promoting battery electric vehicles will realize that this this is not sustainable. So you have to do uh, something about uh, those emissions because they are equally bad. If you kill people in the Congo, it's, you know, uh, it's not acceptable. If you have any conscience, that is. You know. So those yeah. those points, those things will become much more important as the number... Uh, and the battery size increases basically, uh, you know. And then there are other issues like, well, are we resource constrained? You know, well, 
it's probably there's enough lithium in the world to go about uh, to uh, allow such a huge change. I'm I'm just trying to uh, demonstrate. I mean, demonstrate the various barriers uh, uh, battery electric vehicles have for uh, unlimited growth. You know, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. So when you start increasing the numbers, you'll have to address all these other issues. And we are very, very, uh, and and this is true about all alternatives as well. They all start from extremely low levels and there are huge uh, environmental and economic consequences of unlimited growth. And you have, you will hit this wall when the numbers start growing, basically. I mean, that's, so we have to be conscious of this uh, when we say we want to replace all cars uh, by battery electric vehicle. But again, as I keep emphasizing, even if you did that, you know, uh, you will have addressed only about 45% of the problem associated with transport, uh, you know, because uh, aviation and heavy duty uh, road vehicles, etc., uh, will have to depend on internal combustion engines because the batteries required for that are far too large. You know, mm-hmm. and it won't make any sense. That was going to be my next question, and we mm-hmm. kind of uh, we kind of alluded to it earlier in the conversation, where you know we talked about air transportation and how you know, contrary to a lot of news articles you see about you know the future of aviation's electric and things like this, why can't I mean you just kind of hit it hit on the the topic there just a second ago, but can you talk a little bit more about Mm -hmm. that? Why can't air transportation, and let's even talk about water transportation, you know, these big ships and things like that. Why can't those be electrified? What's the problem? Well, I mean, uh, you take uh, even a a short haul uh, uh, commuter jet like the Embraer to 135 or something like that. It carries about 51 megawatts of, uh, megawatt hours of uh, uh, fuel energy. Okay, uh, if you, I mean, and uh, and it's a jet. And suppose now you want to convert that jet into a, a, a propeller-driven aircraft or something with all the other disadvantages, whatever. Uh, if you did that, you might not need fifty-one megawatt hours. Suppose you need only seventeen megawatt hours, say, right? I mean, because one third, mm-hmm. because it's much more efficient and things like that. Yeah. But if you look right. at uh, the weight of the battery, it will be about uh, five times larger than the maximum takeoff weight of the uh, of, of, of the vehicle of the plane, you know. And wow. if you if you want to replace, for example, for a, a medium uh, haul jet like the A three twenty or something, A three hundred, uh, you know, Airbus, uh, the weight of the battery to carry an equivalent amount of uh, um, energy because uh, as, as it carries in, in, in uh, currently, will weigh about uh, 15 times the weight of the, you know, uh, maximum takeoff weight of the, uh, the plane. And remember, you, you can't really change, I mean, uh, the medium haul jet to uh, run on propellers again now. I mean, we are, you have to think about how you're going to dump this uh, uh, battery energy to heat the, uh, you know, air to run it as a jet 
jet engine. Okay, so you 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 can't do the uh, kind of uh, uh, reduction in energy required that I I've talked about for the, uh, the short haul jet, which could become a propeller jet for a propeller engine, for instance. Uh, uh, yeah. And I mean, if you think about uh, the very large. Um, Cargo ships. I mean, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, uh, okay, before I go there, I mean, essentially, what it means is, in order for aviation to be um, driven by batteries, the battery energy density has to improve by a factor of about seventeen. We're not talking about ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty percent improvements. We're talking about a factor of seventy. Mm-hmm. Seventy, seven zero, seven zero, seven zero, right? Right. right. Uh, so. And this is not possible unless some entirely new kind of battery is invented. Okay, it's not on the horizon. Here is another problem. Suppose you have a, you know, you invent such a battery, right? Now, how are you going to charge it? I mean, if you charge it at about one megawatt, I mean, I've done all these sums in the, in this paper and applied energy I've shown. Uh, if you want to uh, charge it at one megawatt, you remember the the maximum uh, charge levels are around 350 kilowatts now for battery charging at the moment. You know, uh, one megawatt to charge an Airbus A320, for example, it'll take 11 days. Right now, 11, 11 days. Days. You know. If wow. you want to charge, I mean, if you charge it at one megawatt, it'll probably set fire to the battery anyway. Then that's a different matter. But right. uh, if you're, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, suppose you have twenty of them waiting in in uh, in, a, in an air, uh, you know airport, how are you going to supply this energy? I mean, uh, electric energy to the airport, for example. You know, uh, I mean. I, and we have to consider this. I mean, if you look at, uh, for example, I worked out for uh, the the amount of uh, the size of the battery required for to run a huge container ship, uh, uh, the biggest container ship that was known at that time in 2017, uh, you would require uh, a battery which weighs, uh, hold on, let me see the figures here. I mean, it's uh, uh, like uh, twice the Displacement, yeah, large container ship will require uh, uh, about 170 million kilowatt hours of fuel energy. And a battery pack to hold that much energy would weigh over a million tons. Okay, that's around six, mm-hmm. uh, 5.8 times the t- dead weight tonnage of the ship. Okay, and if you wanted to yeah. charge it at the rate of 10 megawatts, it'll take two years. You know? Wow. So this again highlights, it comes back to what we are talking about. Why are liquid fuels uh, the fuels of choice for transport? Because they have very high energy density, you know. Uh, and this, this, is, this is what illustrates it, basically, you know. And in any case, for air, aircraft, for example, where weight is everything, why are you trying to replace uh, such an energy-dense uh, fuel by something which is which weighs a lot more for uh, you know you'll just make everything that much more difficult and I I think the only way you can uh, I mean we, we haven't gone into the alternative fuels for uh, uh, 
aircraft, etc. I mean, again, we talked, there's a lot of talk about biofuels, for instance, for aircraft in yes. e-fuels and yeah. so on. You know, but mm-hmm. if you look at biofuels, they have about 16% less uh, their energy per kilogram or whatever, you know. So your your fuel to do the same job will weigh 16 more and that means you can't cargo carry that much cargo and if it's a passenger plane that probably means you can't car- carry any passengers at all I mean in fact you know so mm-hmm. uh, it, the only way to decarbonize a- aviation completely is to shut it down I mean which is what's happening at the moment basically in, yeah. so that's my view yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay so that thank you for that so Given given everything we've talked about um, and sort of all the challenges to decarbonization, so what do what do we do in your opinion? So how do we ensure sustainability of transport? I mean, how do we improve the internal combustion engine with conventional fuels? What do, what do we do? Well, as uh, we have just published a paper two days ago, I mean, I mean, you know, you must know this because you are an associate editor of transportation engineering. Yes, very nice we paper, by the way. Pa- Thank you for that. Yeah, on the scope with uh, um, uh, my colleagues in Oxford and also Paul Miles from Sandia mm-hmm. about the scope for improvement in internal. There's tremendous scope for improving internal combustion engines with existing fuels, uh, but with better combustion systems, better control systems, better uh, after treatment systems. You know, and this is all happening anyway. You know, and in fact, in the paper we looked at some of the things that have already been implemented. And by just uh, uh, through improvements in combustion sy- uh, systems that I talked about, you could improve fuel, uh, con- uh, you reduce fuel consumption by about 30% compared to what it is now generally. Mm-hmm. And if you bring in other uh, things like uh, partial electrification, in other words, hybridization and uh, uh, light weighting, etc., you could reduce fuel consumption by about 50%. Mm-hmm. By, by about 50%. Yeah. So there is tremendous scope for it. And then going forward, there is a lot of scope for uh, building fuel engine systems together. One of the my favorites is, of course, gasoline compression ignition, uh, which I started uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, well, well, not 10 years ago, I suppose. Uh, and uh, there is tremendous scope for this uh, by running... Uh, these uh, uh, engine diesel engines uh, using uh, low octane gasoline essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So you you have diesel like efficiencies. Uh, you have um, uh, uh, you also gain a, a little bit on the fuel manufacture in terms of CO two. Uh, so. In the medium term, there are all these possibilities. There are other technologies as well, like uh, RCCI and so on, that uh, you might know. know. But essentially, uh, uh, there's a lot of scope. And this is the point. If we, uh, unless, uh, see, 99.9%, 99.8 to 99.9% of all transport is driven by combustion engines now. Okay. Yes. And if you make even small improvements in here, uh, you have a huge impact compared to completely stopping them. And this is why it is senseless to stop, I mean, uh, to ban internal combustion engines so that, you know, if you do that, you'll just stop, uh, you know, um, research and development in this. So 
A simple answer to your question is how do we tackle this? We tackle this by using all the technologies, including battery electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles, uh, you know, uh, other uh, fuels where they make sense, you know, uh, and uh, improving the internal combustion engine. In other words, you use all available technology to mm-hmm. reduce the impact of transportation on uh, on the environment, basically. And I mean, you have to also balance this against uh, uh, energy security and supply and demand. Because remember, this is uh, CO2 emissions are not always the driving force behind any of these changes. Because in many countries, it's energy security that's much more important. Right. You know? uh, so... Uh, it's a complex issue. I mean, we could talk about this completely separately. We could. Time. We could have a whole but, show uh, on this. I, I see we've already gone to 40 minutes, I see. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's yeah. that's a very good message. And that's something that, again, the general public, when they hear internal combustion engines, they think 100-year-old technology, you know, it's not. it can't get any better. Um, so the, that this idea that no, there are a lot of ways that we can keep improving the internal combustion engine and also bring in things like hybridization and, and lightweighting and things mm-hmm. that you just talked about. There's a there's a substantial room for improvement, and it would be silly of us not to take advantage of that. So I think you did a really nice job summing that up. So now I'm yeah. now I'm curious. Uh, yeah, but before oh, I, yeah, sure. I would actually say not only not only is it uh, would be silly not it is essential that we do that. Okay, otherwise they, you won't make much of a difference to uh, the, the sustainability of transport. I think. I mean, that's the point. You know, it is essential. Yeah. I agree. It is essential. Yeah. Yeah. Do, yeah. So okay. So do you have any projects coming up that our listeners might be interested in learning about? Uh, well, not really. I mean, in a sense, you know, I've retired. I mean, though I'm uh, actually visiting professor here. Uh, I mean, of course, I do publish occasionally with uh, my colleagues in the department. But in the UK, visiting professorships are most more, more honorary. I mean, there's no commitment either way. I don't have any teaching, uh, uh, you know, duties or uh, research projects in the department. You know, it's the same It's Imperial as the same in Sheffield. Okay. Unlike with the... Uh, so I have no uh, active... Uh, uh, but I'm very interested in all these areas, essentially. So I keep in touch with everybody working in this area. In, uh, you know, not everybody. I mean, a lot of people I know in this area. Yeah, you are very active. And, you know, you, you go around and give a lot of presentations on this topic. And clearly you also yes, do podcasts. Yeah. So thank you for doing this. Um, but, you know, I really appreciate, you know, we need... We need more strong voices out there saying exactly what you're, you're saying about we have to keep improving the internal mm-hmm. combustion engine. These are the challenges to go, you know, fully all electric or, or whatever it is. There's always trade-offs and there's always unintended consequences mm-hmm. to these things. And the more mm-hmm. we can get yeah. out there and kind of educate the public about this, the better. Yeah, this is another point which I wanted to emphasize, really. I mean, uh, as I said, all alternatives start at a low level and they have these barriers and it is really important that when you want to change something you assess this on a life cycle basis correct okay Uh, because i mean if you look at a lot of things that have happened in brought in in the name of the environment for example they have either been ineffective or uh, counterproductive biofuels are a good example you know bioenergy in fact most environmentalists are against biofuels now but they are here to stay because 
what is driving bio in, improve you know increase in biofuels is many other drivers like uh, energy security or agricultural lobbies and so on and also things like ethanol are actually very good fuels for uh, spark ignition engines so it's a very complex thing uh, you know there are very complex interactions and we have to look at all these uh, you know uh, interactions so that there are no unintended uh, consequences mm-hmm. yes and quite often there are unintended consequence consequences but when you for example do a silly thing like ban internal combustion engines for instance you know right uh, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. So we are essentially done with the interview, but I do want to end on a little bit of a lighter note. Um, can you think of one fun fact about yourself that our listeners might not be aware of and might want to hear about? Uh, I'm quite boring that way, but I'm a big fan, cricket fan, basically. Let's put it this way. My my <clears throat> ambition was after retirement to go to all these exotic cricket, uh, you know, for test matches uh-huh. in, involving India. By the way, I'm also a passionate supporter of Indian cricket team, though I've not been living in India for nearly 50 years. But, you know, you support the team that you grew up with. Basically, exactly, basically. exactly. So my, my, my aim was to go and... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, go to all these beautiful places in the West Indies and Sri Lanka, etc., and watch test matches involving India, for example. But uh, it hasn't happened yet. Maybe <laughs> I will get to do this sometime. <laughs> yes. Well, as long as you're, as long as you keep talking about uh, not banning IC, IC engines along the way, <laughs> I'm good with that. Or, or, or aviation, for that matter. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Okay, Gautam, this has been this has been great. I really appreciate it. You are a wealth of knowledge, and I really enjoy talking to you. And I know, I know, our audience will really enjoy listening to this as well. So, you know, it's been. It's been a couple of years, I think, since I've seen you in person. I I saw you at Oxford, in Oxford uh, yeah. back in yeah, 2018. Yeah, yeah. So I hope I hope in the near future I get to see you again and and we can hug engines again together. Yeah. Well, I see that you published that uh, photograph today. Was uh, Richard Stone taking that picture? By the way. Oh, it was Richard because Stone he, taking the he, picture. He, okay. <laughs> must have been because he's not in the picture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It must have been Richard. That's right. I didn't even think about yeah, that, but good yeah. point. So, okay, Gautam, uh, thank you very much, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks a lot. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Okay, guys, that's it for this episode. It's always great to catch up with Gautam and hear what he has to say about transportation. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the show. It's available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, or you can grab the RSS feed or listen directly at eclectichighway.com. And you can follow us on social media, Twitter, at Eclectic Highway, Instagram, at The Eclectic Highway, or Peter Kelly Senecal on LinkedIn. Remember guys, the future is eclectic. <laughs>